Palace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lenahan. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Mallcast. Good evening. Good evening. Did you at any stage think that Ireland were going to lose against Scotland? Yes. Short answer is yes. Uh, I got a little bit discouraged when we lost our third forward in the in the first half. Um, and then when we came back out in the second half and I saw Josh van der Fleer throw the first one in, I thought, like, I have a lot of faith in Josh, but it's an extremely hard thing to do um, in the, at at any level of rugby is to to take on it's like asking someone who hasn't kicked goals before to to start kicking your goals it can go completely wrong so yeah i was worried there i thought that scott played really well in the first half stressed us in a lot of in a lot of different parts of the field and had the feeling they had the feeling that they were capable of winning and sometimes Sometimes I think that's been a bit of a false belief with them. They might talk a lot about how they can beat they can beat Irish teams. They're used to beating and you're going, you're not used to beating us that often because you haven't done it. But I felt that yeah, we're under we're under a lot of pressure there. It's a very, uh, very sort of from a, from a spectator's point of view, like it was very hairy moments. I certainly had a. Um a bad vibe, and I think, in particular, I thought Ireland were at the start of the second half, and that was the period I felt the the worst vibes. Was I thought Ireland were literally just hanging on for as long as they could with fifteen men in the pitch, with uh, Ronan Callagher barely able to play uh, because they knew they were going to have to go down to fourteen men. Little did I know they'd already the Keane Healy had ticked the superhero box as well as the hooker box. On his way out to the pitch. Yeah, now funnily enough, I did I did know that. I'd read an interview with, with Kean before, uh, where he had spoken about going back to putting himself in at hooker on the on the team sheet after we'd played Italy and they'd gone down. So uh, the Six Nations last year, when uh, Fiver was sent off, uh, and and they went down to thirteen. So Healy'd played. I, this is not news to anybody now. It was spoken about in the broadcast, but he actually had been hooker for for Belvedere College as a schoolboy and an Irish schools player. So it wasn't completely new to him. Now, he's never played hooker, never started a game in hooker. And previous this hadn't come off the bench as a hooker. Uh, but I, I knew that he would he would be down as a uh, as a hooker replacement and that we wouldn't go down to uh, 14 men. Uh, but I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Like I thought, he, I thought he might end up throwing in the ball and we just throw throw to one and two a lot. Funny enough, I don't think we threw to one at all in the game. We didn't do a gimmick. Um, so, yeah, I was... Uh, you just you just don't know how these things are going to go. You have no inkling for it. And also, the other part that comes into play is if it's a tight match, 
Jesus, we have very few subs to bring on. You know, we've used all our subs. Like Furlong, who's playing his first game as Don Lennon had figured out in 100 days. Uh, he ended up playing for 65 minutes. Because you can't bring on, you can't bring on that sub as early as you might like. Because what if we get another injury? You know, um, who do you end up playing? You end up playing like a, an outside back sub as flanker. You might end up having to bring on Robbie Henshaw to replace Peter Manny or Josh van der Fleer if he gets injured. So you're you're in a tight spot. Yeah, we ended up having Andrew Porter play 80 minutes. And, you know, it's uh, understandably... Uh, a lot of the credit has gone to the guys who who came in and did unfamiliar jobs, like Josh throwing in the ball, Keane Healy at hooker, but like Porter playing a full eighty minutes at loosehead was a uh, was another huge effort. As was now James Ryan typically does play the eighty minutes, but to see him being able to cover as much ground at the pace he did after seventy six minutes, your tight head lock doing that is absolutely sensational. So the same question to you. Did you think we were going to lose at any stage? Probably, but I I can't remember exactly. I was thinking would Robbie Henshaw end up playing in the back row, which I was kind of looking forward to seeing. Um, I honestly can't remember. Like I, Yeah, probably when we had that many guys gone in the first 20 minutes... I was. I honestly can't remember. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's. Um, I thought it was going to be a close match. Like I, I found myself. The biggest thing I noticed about that match, the before and after, was how much uh, conviction or belief I have in Ireland after that. I. I sort of found it through instinct or profitability that I look at the handicap for each match and I go, Ireland aren't going to beat that. Like, they're not going to beat the spread against Australia. They're not going to beat the spread against Fiji. Uh, against France, I think we'll win, but I don't know, like, I don't know how you make this match. Like, if Ireland are five-point favourites, I wouldn't back Ireland at that. Um, and even against Wales, I was like, oh, Gatland, Cardiff, all that sort of stuff. Like, are, are we going to beat them away by by that many points so uh, i i thought it would be less than nine points which i think was was the line against a scottish team playing at home that can score that are in good form and i thought it was an absolutely incredible win from just a team that had forgotten to lose or how to lose i think that was what i underestimated about the experience of going down to New Zealand and the 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 experience of playing with the team that just knows how to win, particularly with playing with it with the team that knows how to win when they're not that good. I'm not sort of suggesting that Ireland aren't that good, but like if you play in a team and you go through a really good season and you win and you might win a double, and then the following season you go back out, but you you pretty miss four or five players. Like four or five guys go because for one reason or another, they don't they don't carry on the guys that come in aren't as good you'll still have an incredible season mm. next season because you're just your muscle memory and your belief of of how to win is there like you, you don't tend to panic and it's it's just it's all that sort of stuff like it's like you're confident you you actually believe you will win every single match you go out to play and then that gets uh diluted even further and you you might end up like three or four seasons playing for a different team but if you're in a situation where you've got three or four guys from that 
great team as as you consider it like your your double winning team in the dressing room you just go there's no way we lose this match yeah i was just trying to think of why that could be i think part of it is you're not super worried about winning you think like we just have to find the right way and then we'll win it's not like winning is something that's that's over here and how do we get there is there oh no if we do this thing the right way if we play our best yeah that means we win you know, it's not. It's not like it's the the win is an abstract to the performance. It's like if we if we play well enough, we'll win this. And it, it's other stuff. And like I I think this applies at, at all levels of sport. So, you know, be it playing tip or five aside or whatever at a more advanced stage, shall we say, um, like good talk from people can really benefit. Um, whereas poor talk. Like it's really costly, <laughs> and I think that you'd like you notice it, and you sort of think to yourself, Jesus, like I'm playing with guys who should know better. Like I'm playing with guys who are parents and who are professionally successful, and like their patter is awful. Yeah, like no wonder their team keeps on losing. Yeah, in a, in a game of five aside, um, whereas you play with guys who are just like reassuring talk or just like talk before something happens yeah rather than sort of after the event and invariably their team wins and so ireland's ability to win matches i was really really struck by that after the match and i have to say i was really struck by nusafor's role in it because nusafor has taken the approach that he addresses the media once a year or maybe twice a year so maybe he does like a december and a may press conference mm-hmm. and other than that he doesn't answer any questions he doesn't even answer questions when he turns <laughs> no, up. Yeah. he just gives a briefing he just goes and talks to what he wants to talk to and he doesn't entertain anybody so he comes across like a prick but he's pretty looking at this going look it's not my job to work for other people it's not my job to write newspaper copy it's my job to think, identify or what are the important things for Irish rugby to do and then to make decisions about how to put those important things into place. So when Ireland came back from the 2019 World Cup, he, he identified four things. And one of the things that he said was oh, the psychological side. And if you're like reading the comment section of you know, the 42, which is invariably the one that gets the most um, sort of... Uh, traffic. The variety in traffic. You sort of think to yourself, well, that obvious man. Like, everybody knew that they bottled it and they were crap. But when you're responsible for it, like, you can't just put down every single thing that comes into your mind as your strategic review, because you're going, no, like you actually have to hit the marks. If you're going to put down four things, those four things have to be the four things. You can't put down seven things and say, ah, well, four of these are right. And like three of them are crap because yeah. it matters. Cause like, you're going to spend time and energy yeah. and, and, and energy, <laughs> energy and money on trying to, trying to fix if, if it's say, if say there's seven things, like each of those is going to take money and time. And if three of those are, are non-factors, they're taking the money and time out of the things that were the four important factors. And you're on top of a professional structure that if you start calling out red herrings, you're going to lose credibility. And like people aren't going to believe in what you're saying. So one of the things that he called out was the psychological side. And to use his quote, what he said, performance anxiety or stress. 
I, re- I do believe is really relevant for us before and during the tournament. And he talked about the, having to deal with that mentality of being a front runner, handling pressure, expectation in that period of being the best. And he, he talked about like going from the 2018 to the 2019. And he recognized that it wasn't just the players, but also the staff, you know, so the sort of the, the wider environment. So again, it's one thing to to identify it and to say, to not confuse the signal and the noise and then to go about remedying it. You have to, that's, that's, that's kind of the hard bit, you know, like, so even if you identify the four accurate things, like a consultancy job can do that. And they did get an external consultant in, but like, then you've got to know how to fix it. So Gary Keegan's role has been talked about a few times over the last four years. Um, but like that belief and conviction from Ireland was like completely at odds with the Italians in particular, who who really played a good match. But it even like it it broke. I think it broke the Scots. Like at at the end of the match, the Scots were just gone. And you talked about how Richie isn't a particular captain that he sort of moans at referees and he feels hard done by. And like Hogg was gone, Russell was gone, and Richie was just like asking questions and then going back shaking his head to the back row of the scrum all the time and you just sort of think these guys are emotionally fractured they've they've just been broken they, they've run ahead of ideas yeah whereas ireland seemed to grow stronger with with the misfortune and unreal performance gregor townsend actually gave a very lucid post-match interview which i read a long one when he talked about how the first half was a was a great game of test rugby, ding dong. And he said, I was very disappointed in our second half. Um, Scotland had had their, their championship thus far. They'd always had a strong third quarter. And in this, the third quarter, that's where, that's where Ireland won the game. And he said, maybe we chased the game too early, but we didn't. We we had a because normally Townsend is is a fellow who puts a positive gloss on on everything, and and I I find I find that like sort of uh, implausible when everything is positive all the time. You're you're gleaning silver linings out of absolute thunder clouds. But in this one, I felt he put a very realistic, uh, he he put his a very realistic opinion out there. I thought, yeah, that's absolutely spot on. And what you said about the Scots being fractured. Uh, I agree, and that's like they were the team who were at home. They were the team who had the crowd behind them, who who didn't suffer. Obviously, Gray went off early, and you know they have a second row bin. But Scott Cummings is is actually a decent player. You know the Scottish pack is is probably the best pack they've had in in my memory. Um, and they were facing against a hugely disrupted Irish side and then they the game gets away from them and and they never look like coming back in the final 20 never look like coming back so you know whether it's I think it is partially a lack of leadership and in looking at that team that Scottish team I don't see where there is other leadership options <clears throat> I think that point you made about Ireland uh, not dealing with being the front runners previously um, is very interesting because it's certainly like the thing that Steve Hansen played upon as soon as Ireland had beaten New Zealand, or yeah, or even in the in the lead up to that, it was one versus two now, and he was 
very much weighing upon it. Ireland didn't perform well in 2019 throughout in both tournaments, particularly the Six Nations, but also the World Cup. But the funny thing is that, like, New Zephora is obviously looking at everything from whatever his helicopter view of Irish rugby. He'd know, and it, it's, it, it's kind of wise, I think. Ireland are going to be the front runners again because they produce so many talented players. So it's not like this was like a once... The team that was built in 2019 wasn't built on... Well, it was built on Johnny Sexton, obviously. But it didn't. It wasn't like built on sort of these uh, superstar players one in, once in a generation, like O'Driscoll, O'Connell, maybe Sean O'Brien in that bracket as well. Of these guys who were like kind of head and shoulders and, sort of, and Lions stars. But rather, it's built on a production line of talent that is going to continually stock Ireland with top class yeah, professional a, players. A successful system. So there's a chance that we'll be up the top again. Yeah. And something which I, I just sort of found out yesterday is uh, we've been world number one for 30 weeks or 31 weeks or something like that, which is the longest Northern Hemisphere world number one reign. Longer than, you know, longer than England when they were world champions. Uh, now we're somewhere off... New Zealand's run on like 509 weeks <laughs> consecutively at world number one. But it's still, you know, we've been world number one for a while. If we get to the end of this tournament and if we win against England, uh, we'll, be, we'll be world number one for the year. I had, um, just to answer my own question, I, had, I was texted people or texted one group of people saying... I've got a bad vibe about this game, you know. I think it was when Kelleher was going off, and I, I thought, I wasn't sure, but I thought I'd put the question on Twitter, and someone had said, well, Healy'd have to be down to play as a hooker. And I wasn't, I didn't know if he was. And I just, I could see us going to 14, and, and it being the kind of like, there had been so much talk about the late bus, and uh, Farrell's had so much talk about, you know, overcoming adversity and like, Bust, but it turns up five seconds before kickoff. We'll walk off and play the game. And, um, like, I thought that was just going to be this annoying storyline of this one. It's like, why are you stop talking about the bus? It still fucking is annoys me. Like, I find I find constant harking back uh, to, like, four years ago in Japan or six years ago in Murrayfield as ways of sort of needling, you know, Joe Joe Schmidt as though like Joe Schmidt was some fucking massive problem with Irish rugby. Personally speaking, I find that really fucking tedious. Anyway, let me um, wrap up what I was saying. Um, so there was the, the, it's the same part of me that was going, Jesus, Gatlin's got the willies up me before the first game. And then the, the sort of logical part of me was going like, in the fourth quarter of every game, we have put in these ill grueling, multi-phase, just where we've worn down absolutely everyone to score key tries. Uh, we did it against the Wales for a bonus point. We did it against France for a bonus point. We wrapped up the Italy game. Was that a bonus point try? Was it the fourth or fifth try? I can't remember. Um, and I just thought, we're going to we're gonna do that to this Scotland team. And we did it twice. And I, instead, it was, it, instead of being like one try, it was, it was the one-two of these tries. But the... The, the the low try really had that feeling of just like, oh, we've made that incision. We're not going to let it go. We're going to go until we score the try. And then Johnny kicking conversions from the touchline. Oh, two, two great kicks. Yeah. 
and was really happy with his one of from his the right hand of Jack's, uh, and also how well Jack Conan played. Yeah, that how much she loved it as well. Like she's like some of the best games I've ever been involved in. in his yeah, life. everyone, everyone was so uh, delighted to win, and they were like ecstatic. Farrell said the same thing. He said, "Best game I've been involved in." Yeah, like really made a huge impact on them, and and that's why I think just like. The, the confidence that you get from winning a match like that is it's just impossible like it's, it's not something that can be bottled and sold like you have to earn it and I, like winning a test series in New Zealand how many how many how many opportunities do you get to tour in New Zealand you know like you it's World Cup every four years you you might get like there's a lines every two years so you're not going to go either of them so then you've got to go in the one before the one after and you might go to Australia, you might go to South Africa, you might go to New Zealand. But the previous time, like that Ireland toured, had been ten years beforehand, and that that's not unusual. Like, um, so never mind. Then it's it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for most players to to do it, and then to win it is absolutely incredible. So there's there's obviously a huge amount of confidence that comes from that, which really stands that Ireland team, but. Even going back further, and you were talking, we were talking about Joe Schmidt and, and this sort of idea of you know needling at Joe Schmidt. But Irish rugby has had that continuum. So nine guys who played at the weekend started the Grand Slam match against England in twenty eight. Five years ago now. Five years ago now. Um. And sorry. So yeah, nine guys who played at the weekend started. So, like, th- that experience of winning a Grand Slam is there, which, again, is is really unusual because Ireland's previous Grand Slam before that was nine years was nine years before, and then before that was, like, 50, 50 or 60. 60, I think. Yeah, 60 started um, around 50. So none of the guys were... So, like, even a guy as celebrated as Brian O'Driscoll, like, he hadn't been up to that level. Like, nobody in the Irish dressing room knew what it was like to win a Grand Slam. They'd won triple crowns, but... They, you know, they they kind of become commonplace, and whereas the Grand Slam had this mythical quality to it. So obviously, when they won it in twenty eighteen, like Rob Carney, Rory Best had that experience. Now there's nine guys who have won a Grand Slam, which again is is one of those sort of things that give you confidence. But it's 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 more like a longer term, deeper seated. Uh, kind of a reassurance i guess that you that you have in the squad so ah like i mean it was it was an incredible win it really it was it was a brilliant win i'm not surprised to see so many people reacting to just how special it was because they look an extremely difficult team to beat yeah and there's a lot of old-fashioned or or sort of quite simple virtues in there in terms of bravery and resilience which uh, everyone can admire without without necessarily looking at the X's and O's of how this try was scored or that try was scored. Like everyone I talked to at work today was there going, whoa, what a game that was. You know, not necessarily all rugby fans, but they're all blown away by how well we handled adversity and how well people adapted to it and took on new roles with confidence and trusted in their teammates. Uh, You know, that they, you know, for example, Van der Fleer, that people had confidence in him, yeah, he'll be able to do it that Kean went in and goes, yeah, I'll be able to get by. As he said, you know, I'm inside two of the best props in the world. I don't mind if I have a bad scrummer or so. I just want to help the team. So I think the Irish 
a lot of uh, people will just have responded sort of to those uh, sort of old-fashioned, simple core virtues, which I think that they displayed. And, you know, we played very good rugby as well, but there was a lot of, you know, heart and bravery, courage and resilience in that, which is is something that you don't always say about, you know, contemporary or sport-like. Um, yeah. Chief amongst the uh, heart and endeavour in the pack, I thought, James Ryan. And, like, Peter Armani continuing to, like, just improve as an international rugby player as he goes towards the... What, what colour was he on your on your graph? Orange. orange, which <laughs> it's a danger warning for getting slightly too old. Red is the Johnny Sexton category <laughs> on, the, on the chart. But Peter Manny, I'm like, I thought one of his best games for Ireland ever in the in the kind of I I've often um, <clears throat> I've often said, you know, he's, he's this catalytic player who makes these incredibly big moments. We so many of them in, in in big international games, line eight steals, turnovers on the ground, or like just some I'm snaffling the ball as he slid against. New Zealand, um, but that was a game where he did all of the the humdrum stuff. Yeah, more with the wor- ferocity that like he doesn't usually do. Like, yeah, a more workmanlike performance, and also he normally doesn't go the eighty minutes. Um, so he was on the pitch for the full eighty. He took on um, a lot of that helping Josh van der Fleer by getting up so quickly at two. And Josh doesn't have the hooker canniness of throwing the ball down his own side. Like Josh was throwing him in the middle. <laughs> you know? His honesty problem. Um, and, and oh man, he's getting up there. His, his, you know, his always his greatest strength has been his sensational line-out ability. Now, he wasn't uh, alone in that. You know, Ryan uh, and Ryan Baird were also excellent there. But uh, yeah, he, he put in an excellent performance. As you said, Cone put in a, a great performance coming on very early for uh Keelan Doris. I just want to get this off my chest. I, like that that law is fucking nonsense. And Omani oh, was yeah. absolutely correct when he said to uh to the ref, you know, Luke Pierce, like if they want to play on that's their throw, we'll play, you know, it doesn't matter to us about the ball. Also Doris was hitting the air. Yeah. Like he, he got he got the he won he won the, the contact against another player who was jumping for the ball. As he was coming down, Jack Dempsey absolutely fucking nailed him while he was still in the air. Like and Doris to the point where Doris almost goes sideways. So now that we scored like two phases after that. That gets called back. And by the way, Pierce says new ball play at the start of that. You can hear him on the broadcast. So he'd instructed the players to play. They did play. Our player gets injured for being hit in the air, which is a yellow card. And and then nothing happens. And we lose a player. You know, this is a f- absolute fucking catastrophe. And it's a fucking stupid law. If you're playing at home, then you can just go and say, oh, we'll take a fucking quick line out every time. Doesn't matter if the ref calls us back. You know, there's no downside to it. There's absolutely no downside to just getting the ball by throwing you. And I think it happened in Cardiff, didn't it? It did, didn't, yeah. Didn't somebody log Mike the Phillips. Welsh guy, Mike Phillips, yeah. and he just, he just took it? And he yeah, shouldn't have been let away, but you're like, how bad? Sure, what's the worst that can happen is you just get the line out. Yeah. So it's stupid. One of rugby's many stupid, contradictory... Uh, Laws really frustrating. Well, I think that's a vestige of the introduction of multi-ball system and like, yeah, it's also people want to encourage quick lineups, quicken the game up, etc. Yeah. But it's fucking stupid. It, I, it's it the fact that there's no sanction for or like that we can't get play advantage when like we've done all the good stuff and they're the guys who've made the fuck up. They're the guys who've made the like the 
they've transgressed this bizarre law. <laughs> you know, there, there's no like, oh, there's no advantage. And then just turn over the line. It. But, yeah, exactly. Or like by comparison, Key and Heaty doesn't doesn't kick the ball. And it's a scrum and was like, well, why? He didn't start the play. Is it you're not allowed dummy a penalty? Is that a law? What if you, you know, oh. it, it, it's just, that's just another vestige of, it used to be like if you took the penalty from the wrong position, you'd get a scrum against you. But it's a thing that only got ever given against schoolboys. Mm. A, a professional would always be like, just go back and take it from the right place. Because like, you can't turn over this. You know, yeah, but I, I know what you mean. Kind of currency of a penalty and give a scrum. And then you're going like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't seem particularly like the ball is The ball is dead. Yeah. So yeah. like, it can only restart once he taps it. If he doesn't tap it, the game can't have restarted. It's not a question of I tapped it and it didn't move. Like it yeah. was just no, I didn't tap it. Like I tapped and I didn't move is that I hold it in my hands, I bang it against my foot. Yeah, so I can't ball, knock it on. The yeah. ball doesn't move, and you're there going, well, you have tapped it with your foot. So, like, is that the magic to to restart? Yeah. You know, is, <laughs> is that the bell that 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 rings the market open? Whereas if I don't tap it, then how how can the game have restarted? Yeah. So yeah, sorry, that was that was a sidebar, but really. No, but like again, like just these stupid <laughs> laws. Um, so yeah. other other players. Sorry, let's give that back pats because like obviously Matt Hansen was like fucking king my the sun today. Literally everything he touched turned to gold. He was sensational. James Lowe, uh, he could almost almost as good. He was had a phenomenal game. Keenan, as we're so used to uh, saying, but this is this is like the exhaustive one to twenty three list. Like there wasn't a player out there who didn't put in like some absolutely massive effort. And normally it's those are the sort of these are the sort of days when you're talking about the All Blacks. You beat the All Blacks and everyone gets nine out of ten, and two players get ten out of ten. And it feels sort of strange to be saying it against Scotland, but it's the case of the adversity with which with which we were faced and rising above that adversity. And Scotland have been good this Six Nations, and we're good in a number of periods of this game. For example, like I, I said this, I think on the last podcast, I don't understand how Hugh Jones hasn't been in that Scottish team all the time. Like that fella, bar none, is the form that like he has been the best thirteen in this championship by a distance. He was excellent again today, uh, or on at the weekend. They're a good team, you know. So I guess one of the things we talked about last week was how much Ireland used to rely on certain players, notably Brian O'Driscoll and Paul O'Connell, and how that's uh, diluted, I guess. And now it's almost rotation about who has big games and who plays. You know, so th- this time around it was it was Mac Hansen and James Ryan, and then I think the fact that and we you know we talked about Healy going in and playing uh, hooker, Josh taking the throws, but. That that roundness of footballing ability. So when Farrell started picking his team, and in particular his his emerging Ireland panel, you sort of go on right. Like he's he's going to pick athletes. He's going to pick explosive guys. He's going to pick guys who can. Um, like he's not pick. He's not looking to pick his midweek test captain here. Like that's not what this tour is for. We sort of talked about that idea. But he's, he's tended to pick ballers and guys who can play rugby. And, you know, to, to borrow from baseball, like the 5-2 the a player, like he's, he's got guys who are 
more often than not can do more than one thing. So, you know, he brought Jacob Stockdale back into the squad and you're sort of going, is he, does he want to rekindle his confidence? Does he want to, to let him know that he's still in there? Like, does he, does he want to see, can he play in the Irish system? Because having a guy like that, I mean, go back to the, the, the class of 2018 Grand Slam team, like Stockdale was a big part of that. Stockdale, yeah. I think, was player to, of player the championship, tournament, yeah. played a tournament. Um, and he's still young and he scores tries. But Ireland have wingers who can kick and who can pass and who can go in at first receiver, as well as guys who can finish. Like, I mean, both Lowe and Hansen displayed tremendous finishing abilities for their tries. But, like, these guys are four or five tool players. Um, and there's a lot of guys throughout the Irish team who you can say that for. So that's that's really become a feature over... I, it's hard to identify when it started, but guys are well-rounded now. And I think that's a real... Again, that's a real feature of this team, is um, two features, really. Like, one, the lack of reliance in any one particular name. I guess Sexton is, is the obvious one, but I didn't think Sexton played particularly prominently. Oh, I agree, yeah. Um, on Sunday. And the second one is just how well-rounded so many of the players are and how many of them are able to do a lot of things well. I just want to talk about Scotland a little bit. We've complimented them a lot on the good parts of their game. We were talking about Ireland and their just knowledge of how to win. Scotland, so why they don't know how to win because they... they found a win out of the England game I think in particular but they've always just been and they're always improving but still not good enough to win a tournament and they're so lippy I couldn't believe Tui Palutu getting in the faces of everyone after he scored, after a huge round scored his try and like yamming off them and twice they got sent back 10 yards which never happens in pro rugby it certainly never happens in international rugby and like, there's such a weird attitude. Like, I, I I don't know. It must be um some element of like that. Oh yeah, you we beat these Irish guys at club rugby all the time. It's like not really that much. Like it, or jealousy or something like that. It, I thought they came off like a poorly disciplined team. Yeah, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So they're not good enough to win a championship. They haven't won a championship. Like that's. They haven't won a, a triple crown and um, going back to the 1990 or something like that. So that's true. The discipline is is definitely an issue. Uh, Jamie Ritchie was was they were they were marched back by the Georgian ref uh, in their previous game against the French. Jamie Ritchie just gone under the Georgian ref's tits, and like he's quite a mild mannered ref. Uh, the the whinging and the constant disputation of all decisions. Um, is not a good look for him. I don't think he's a good captain. Um, he's good seven, but he's not a good captain. Yeah, and you know they've they've had Stuart Hogg as captain before, and, and he's had, you know, he's had discipline issues. Um, Can I just find some big posh Alistair to be their captain? Well, you know, the, you know, you would have thought like that. Johnny Gray would be the classic posh Alistair to put in there, but he has, for a guy who looks set to be sort of the. Scottish Alan Wynne Jones. He's sort of fallen out of form, which is kind of I would have thought hard to do in an effort position, like which is you mm. know in the locks you're going well. What form do you need to like keep on getting up off the ground quickly, attacking people? Like this was the fella who 
you know, sort of famous. He like didn't miss a tackle in his first three Six Nations tournaments, never mind, you know, games. Uh, but he has fallen out of form. He looks less effective. I think playing in uh, for Exeter takes more of a toll on him than it did if he was playing for Glasgow, for example, under under the sort of Scottish equivalent of player management. So yeah, captaincy is an issue, and and they have, you know, they have failings like Sam Warburton. I I watched uh, I watched a recording of the BBC uh, broadcast. Sam Warburton was, you know, how sort of balanced he is, but he was going, I can't believe that they're not, like, they can just kick the ball down the pitch and put it out and just can't, like, just get somebody up at one, one or two. You have, like, you have an open side flanker thrown into the line out. You don't, it doesn't have to be a particularly good kick. It doesn't have to be a particularly good compete. Like, that's all they should be doing is, like, you shouldn't be playing in this position. You should just be putting this line out under pressure. You know, he's going to throw to two. He's going to throw to the front. And if he throws to the back, like, could go anywhere. He's no... And Warburton was not losing his shit, but he was really quite exasperated by their lack of of uh, strategic uh, awareness. You know, situational awareness, rather. And I think go back to, again, conversation that we had last week, that so much of Scotland's game revolves around Finn Russell and Stuart Hawk. Uh, I'm, I'm more so Russell now that you sort of look at you look at Scotland and you go, if we can stop Russell playing particularly well, like are Scotland going to play well? And it's it's like Ireland where 15 years ago, whereas you go, if you can stop Brian O'Driscoll, like how effective are Ireland going to be? Because he's so totemic for them. He's 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 such a creative influence for them that everything everything comes off him. Um, and I, I think Ireland stopped Russell pretty effectively and like Scotland played really well and th- there's a few other guys like it's you know Duhan van der Merwe had a very good tournament Hogg hasn't been as prominent as in other tournaments but he's he's still like a like he's got 100 caps for Scotland and he's been he's been their best player or their most prominent player for for many of them Um I don't mean to shit on Scotland. No, I, no, no, I don't. But I, I don't think it is shit on Scotland. I think it's just that if you if you shut them down from playing that that way that they want to play, where Finn Russell is at the centre of everything, then you do shut down a lot of Scotland because they don't have a plan B. Like they're they're kind of I am going to shit on them. Like they're at a stage where Scotland are really happy to win with Plan A, particularly because Plan A is is attractive. And is exciting. Like everybody, look, everyone's excited to watch Finn Russell, like throw Hummer passes, and find gaps where he didn't think there were gaps, and to to hit incredible kicks with that coordination that he has. Like it's it's wonderful to watch. But said it again, it's it's worth reiterating. Good teams can win in different ways. On the other hand, they weren't supposed to suffer their heaviest ever defeat there. Unfortunately for them, that's what happened. They went down 45-10. It didn't take long for the frailties of the Irish to be exposed at the Pont des Princes, as they continued one of the worst sporting records. They hadn't managed to try here since 1980 and had conceded 26. Make that 27 tries in reply. Speaking of good teams in winning in different ways, France won by absolutely fucking destroying England. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I texted 
uh, both of you short shortly th- halfway through the first half and I said we'll wallop England. And I think maybe now that was the walloping and I, I'm confident we'll beat England, but I don't think we'll wallop them. I think they've you know, they'll do their best to not get walloped again. Um I was looking at that England team going like okay, I don't watch a lot of premiership, but who are some of these lads? Like Don Brandt, Ludlum and Marcus Smith, like well, you but you know those guys, you know you you know who they are, and you've seen them play before. Just about like, but even Marcus Smith, I was there going like, and you texted me saying, "This is a hint to Joey Carby off Marcus Smith," and I was just thinking going like, he's not as good as Joey Carby. Like I I know he runs around for Harlequins, but like, that's like a protected environment that league. Yeah, well, that's a very that's a very good uh, phrase. It is like a protected environment that. The standard of that league, uh, they've been enjoying it over in England uh, because, you know, some of the games have been um, fast-paced and and very open and, and high-scoring. But it's, like, there's not many good teams in it. Like, Exeter have absolutely come apart at the seams and are losing players at a rate of knots. Um, and they would have been, you know, it's not so long ago that they were the best team in Europe. It's three years ago, two and a half years ago, that they were the best team in Europe. They uh, have just slipped so much. Northampton are an ordinary team. Gloucester, who, you know, Leinster played in the European Cup this year, have not a, not much about them at all. Um, so it's a, it's not, it's, it's an ordinary standard of league. You, Marcus Smith can run around against guys and look like a million dollars because there's no pace coming off the line at him. No pace. No one putting him under pressure. He's got loads of space. He has time. Tackles get missed. And he was playing against... Uh, he was just playing a much higher level of rugby. Same goes with, with Don Brandt. I, Don Brandt took a, took a restart on about half an hour, about 31 minutes in, and... I swear to God, I literally hadn't heard his name in the first half hour. He, he took a restart, went into contact, went down like he was shot, and it was like England were going through the motions. In fairness, Jamie George came in and and hit the first French lad off him, and it was a decent clear. Kyle Sinclair just goes in and, and stands guard over it like this is they're just going to let us, you know, clear this. Someone just came in, and absolutely nailed Sinclair, and then three more French lads piled in, and it was. It was a great counter rook, but it wasn't like this is the best counter rook I've ever seen. It was just a, a, an effective hard counter rook, and it looked like it looked like England were not prepared for for it at all. You go, this is, you know, this is uh, Le Crunch. This when when we were growing up in the nineties, that was a completely different standard of rugby to all the other games in the Six Nations, like. That that game t- tended to decide who was going to win the Six Nations, and it was. I remember seeing games like that when uh, you know it was Benazi Benetton Caban versus Rod Burr, Ben Clark uh, and Dean Richards in the back row, and Jesus, like these guys were some of the best back rowers in the world, and the games were ferocious. And this game, you're going like, yeah, there are some of the best back rowers in the world. Like Aldridge's playing, Olivon is playing. England's back row were fucking nowhere. England's second row of Maro Toja has been an outstanding player. He's been nominated for World Player of the Year three times. 
Like this guy is a world class player. He's currently playing like half of himself. Um, Sinclair's playing like half of himself. Uh, Jamie George, like these guys who, when you see their names, you're going, he's good, he's good, he's good, he's good. And then you play and you're going, if that fella, if that was, if that was your third choice hooker playing in Jamie George's body, like that's what, that's what that was like. Or playing with his name on the back as they now have their names. Um, like England were so ordinary, so a shadow of the, a lot of those players were a shadow of themselves. Henry Slade was a shadow of the Henry Slade that, you know, played in, in 2019. He was just, just not at the races. Um, and, and how you can compare is you, you see a fellow like Freddie Stewart, their full black, full back rudder, who's a quality player and has played well in, in every game he's played from you're going, like that's a, a, a player playing at his, his sort of correct standard. And he looks good. You know, he's an international player. And you're going, what, what about all the other players? So uh, I think you're right. I think that... I don't think that we're going to put like a 53-10 weapon on them. I think that's happened to them. They're going to come out full of piss and vinegar and try and play very brutal. Um, and they'll be very motivated when they come to Lansdowne Road. Are we diagnosing a sickness in the English rugby system or just with this team? Because, well, we're not diagnosed like the, the, the sickness in the English system is like we're not making the diagnosis like that's plain fact. It's, it's collapsing. I, like you couldn't pick better time to score than the first minute and the last minute of the first half, and France scored in both of those. So France got a, like a lot of breaks when France's way. And Antoine Dupont was just magnificent. And the confidence in England is really low. As you were saying, like Jamie George is a good player. Kyle Sinclair is a good player. Ellis Genge is a good player. Mm. Maro Toje is a good player. Um, and isn't Chisholm is the other? Chisholm, yeah, yeah. Chisholm, Chisholm was pretty, of their front five, Chisholm was the best of them. Yeah. So you go like here. Here are guys who have played in World Cups. Here are guys who are Lions. Here are guys who are like you know captain their club team, and like they're they're in line. Um, they miss Owen Farrell. They miss Tom Curry. It's that all line about England that if Dean Richards plays, England of you know six or seven hard men in the pack. If he doesn't, they've maybe won. Um, and it was it was quite notable to me that when the English team needed somebody to stand up and say something at the end of the match and you know for them not just to disappear into a disparate sort of mob or it's not even a mob if it's disparate like I mean just this drippings of, of people like Farrell was the one who gathered them together like and this guy's been dropped you know and you sort of go he's still got the confidence to get up and point the finger at guys and to try to talk them up so like he's a really strong personality for them, but like they really missed him, um, and it wasn't like you know when he came on they got much better. They got much better for two minutes, and then it just it just reverted back to being Antoine Dupont messing with them, um, and then just giving the ball to Peno. And like there isn't a better player in the world to give the ball to to Peno. Um, and again, like you you were talking earlier about 
you know, people who aren't really into rugby just liking the virtues of it. And it's kind of funny that, like, near the end of the match when the ball started breaking, you're just telling them, just get it to Penno. Get it over to Penno as quick as possible. Pass it. And the French were just like, we'll just kick it over yeah. there. Like, Dombrandt is closer to it, but, like, <laughs> oh, this Penno is going to get it. And if he gets it, he's going to score. So, um, and, it, like, it was, it was that basic. Um... Saracens cheating and still winning all their leagues. Um, the way the the budget has gone, where grassroots rugby isn't supported, uh, and they've had to make job cuts. Um, two teams going to the wall, two clubs going to the wall. It's just like it's their just CEO getting you know a huge pay rise, up to six hundred and the guts of six hundred and seventy k. You're going, you're overseeing and being, you know, in front of a parliamentary commission and, and them going, you've been asleep at the wheel. And and yet he gets some, uh, like an enormous, like that is an enormous whack of money. Yeah. And it's just this hollowing out of the English game, like a hollowing out of like so much of, of Britain in post-Brexit or in the last, you know, since New Labour went has just been this hollowing out of... So that idea of like the RFU chief executive getting paid this enormous six-figure salary while they they cut jobs elsewhere, and you're there going like, who on earth thought this was justified? Like who else thinks this is a good idea that the guy who runs this, you know, like semi-national company, like who thinks that he's worth this much money? Like he's, yeah, like. <laughs> The, the English rugby union can't be taken over by the Scottish rugby union. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it doesn't work like that, you know. Yeah, it doesn't work that if you know if the Italians like do a reverse takeover, that like you know Giobaldi is going to be coming in as as the head of like that's not how this is fixed. Like this is a semi-state job. That guy yeah. should be getting paid a third of what he gets Correct. paid. Correct. You could uh, get somebody else to do that job for two hundred k, and. Like there will be no, there will be no, uh, be no discernible difference. Yeah, discernible correct. difference. There certainly wouldn't be like a two thirds deterioration in the performance. And you know, people like the nature, the nature of the sorry, <laughs> do we have a labor crisis? The nature of a CEO is like, it may not be all his fault, but it's all his responsibility. Like that is that is how it works. And you're looking at this. Certainly, I look at, at English rugby now in a complete. Um, in a complete shambles, and and you know, he is essentially the man who decided, you know, um, ten weeks before the Six Nations or eight weeks before the Six Nations, I'm going to sack sack my coach who I had no plan on sacking four weeks ago. I'm going to sack him and bring in a new guy. I'm just going to buy a coaching team from from the current champions, like the whole coaching team. I'm going to buy them all out of their contracts and give a uh, have to. You know, fuck up Leicester's season, which is maybe secondary, but it's still a factor. Pay out, pay, uh, pay Eddie Jones off, pay Leicester off. You're going like, God, it, this isn't money well spent, fella. You just got, it's a complete knee-jerk reaction to get rid of Eddie Jones. And like Eddie Jones can is a big enough and, and brash enough fella to defend himself. But I'm just talking about removing the personalities and saying you did this because you were getting a load of shit from a load of 
press criticism, essentially, and probably criticism from members of the public and other people who are influential on your board, and you didn't think long-term, you just fucking reacted. And that is bad CEOing as well. So uh, the, uh, there's a couple of other players who I thought were outstanding. One sort of, I wouldn't say restored my fate, but made me rethink about what, uh, Dorian Aldeguerri coming in, who's, uh, who's a Toulouse, the, a really old-fashioned tight head. Like, he was on the pitch for 50 minutes, he made no carries, made one pass, right? His job was just to make sure that Ellis Genge didn't sort of get that side of the English scrum motoring and England's backs didn't get up on this massive scrum. His The scrummaging battle between the two teams was was a real high point for me. Outstanding technical scrummaging in terms of height and posture. And Aldeguerri was able to lock down the right-hand side of the French scrum so effectively. And he is like a little teapot of a fella. Now, he's not, you know, little, little. He's about 19 stone, but very immobile. Um, nothing at all like either uh, Tony Ho or Hawass. A very old-fashioned prop. And he's there going, that sort of restored my belief that if a tight head is a good enough scrummager, he, despite huge issues with mobility or um, handling or anything like that, or fitness, he can still play test rugby. It was very interesting to see. Second player I thought was amazing. I thought he was brilliant against Ireland. I thought he was France's best forward was was Flamon, the second row, who previously to this, I was thinking like, Jesus, can, can they not do better in the second row than, than Flamon? Well, they probably can because he's fucking excellent. You know, he's a very good model for Ryan Baird, for example, in terms of he uses his, his speed around the park, his pace really quickly, uh, really well, rather, and his handling. So he his line for his try was his his uh, first try was was excellent. Mm, great carry. Yeah, a really good carry. You know, good, very good depth to the start of his run, and then an excellent finishing posture. And then his second try was a much more you know how I would have seen him play as a very loose five and a four in the Victor Matfield type of mold. Really impressive. And then the other one was Aldred coming back to life after his worst championship since since his debut, he had an excellent game. <clears throat> I was really struck at the end of the game how similar all the statistics were, all the kind of headline statistics Crazy. That, that they read off. Um, it made me, yeah, it, I, it made me wonder how important those a lot of those statistics are and how it's more just that they're readily available. Um, and and then the Six Nations is documented extremely well. Their website is, is fantastic for... Uh, uh, having a lot of things under different topics, so most of most of the the, the headlines, England either edged or had parity. Uh, the few that they didn't were points per twenty two entry, line breaks, offloads, which are absolutely lopsided to France, and then handling errors, which was lopsided to France. But you could look at, at you could look at ten other games, and it's not like there's a killer setup. You make more line breaks than the other team you're going to win because Italy shredded Wales in terms of their line breaks and Italy managed to fuck it up and, you know, uh, about three good try scoring opportunities. So there is no, uh, like a, a dozen people have said it before, there is no magic bullet when it comes to statistics apart from the, the score. Focus of attention in France is their gargantuan pack with three specialist props in the front row. I had said that Ireland were going to wallop England 
I think the walloping is off the table because even Steve Borthwick, who looks beleaguered after like four games, well, no, he's an English second row. He's a big, tall, and I'm pretty sure intelligent man and good coach. He's going to say, go in and start a fight with these guys. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to be a ride full of piss and vinegar. Now, England are a very, they can be a very physical team. And I, but, but to counter that and to counter some of my worries, I don't know where their points are going to come from. Um, because they're not, <laughs> I, there's a phrase I don't like, oh, they're, they're not set up to attack. It's like, oh, what the fuck does that mean? Set up to attack. They're not playing that well. They're not scoring that many tries. You know, can they can they bash it over from five meters? Yeah, we're actually a good team. We're a better team than England. Self evident. If you look back at their recent run of results, they can turn around a much better effort performance. But you can't just pull a rabbit out of a hat and go from being a bad team or uh, like a lower middling team to being a very good team and beating the world number one. I don't think you can in in a week six days whatever I don't think there'll be many people on that team who believe they can win in Ireland I think there'd definitely be some George Itoje Farrell guys who've done it with Saracens exactly but I think the majority of them will know that if they bloody Ireland's nose for a large section of that match and like obviously don't come in for anything like the same kind of trancing they took last week or look like just look like a hapless rabble like they did last week. Um, that they'll come in, they'll get, they'll, they will get deserved praise if they, you know, if they pull their, if they react in a way that is appropriate for. Well, like it, it's a tough ask for any England team to win in Dublin. It has been for like the last two decades. Can I ask you a question though? Who do you think? Do you think that Borthwick is going to send out the same team again and say redeem yourselves, or do you think he's going to make? Uh, significant selectorial changes and say that was like every game is a test that wasn't good enough you're out of the, you're out of the picture like that was literally England's worst ever six nations five nations home nations championship result like in the history of the tournament so definitely grounds for for dropping lads for life definitely grounds so but what does he do does he throw? Does he throw these guys out and go back and say, "I'm picking, I'm picking," uh, not necessarily just the old stages, but this this team that I've started to work with, half of you are cut. He ha, he will bring. I don't think he'll. Well, those guys that I mentioned, like, surely they have better back rows than those guys, and Marcus Smith won't play because he only has. This is his last like. Test, you know, full test match before the World Cup. He's Italy and Ireland, I think, is it? Or Wales and Ireland ahead of the World Cup in late summer. Like, he doesn't just have to react to the last match. He has to build to something. Because, like, England's group is Argentina and Japan as the other two, uh, like, teams you could potentially get out of it. He doesn't want to get beaten by Japan, and England can get beaten by Japan if they if they can if they continued in like a complete directionless path. Japan could knock them out. They've beaten South Africa. They've beaten Ireland. They could do it again. 
Argentina could certainly beat them. Argentina beat them in the in, in the November. November when they had a more experienced international coach. I think Eddie Jones was kind of going off in the wrong direction towards the end of his time with England. But like Borthwick's got to be looking at like he'd be out of a job if he gets. Out of, I mean, if he's out of the group in the World Cup, he won't be given you know whatever contract he's on. He'd be out of a job because there are people going like after that France game, going looking at him, going like, "Is he up to this? Like, anyone should be able to get an England team with that amount of experience to not lose by forty three points at home." What do you think he's going to change a, a number of players? Do you think he's going to change his halfbacks, for example? Um, I think you go back to Owen Farrell. I think you'd probably keep Van Poorfleet. Like Chesham's out. Uh, who, who's the centre? Lawrence. Who's the played played pretty well at the first centre? Yeah, Lawrence. Yeah. Um, he's out. I almost think it doesn't matter. Like I, I think that England are just so far away from basically being where they need to be like they're they're not they're not coherent they, they don't look close to being they don't look close to being uh, enough of an attack and threat to score enough points to beat Ireland I was and thinking- I think that it like well, I don't know 20 30 30 years ago England would come over and they'd know that oh you know we have to survive 50 or 60 minutes onslaught from Ireland and then our schools and our superior schools and our fitness will will win out and it's hard not to look at the roles reversals and just go, England are going to come over, they're going to be very physical, but, like, what then? Like, are they are they going to be fit enough to play all the way through? Are they going to have enough good players who are well-organised enough to be able to score more points than Ireland? India Viva? It's just, like, it's just hard to see. Like, if, if they don't have Tom Curry playing, if they don't have... Under, Curry's the big one, I think. Because England always play much better with him. But he's unavailable. And then they don't have... Laws. They don't have laws. They don't have Underhill. Willis has played better matches. But, but oftentimes with England, and this has been going on for as long as I can remember, guys will play really well when they're like flat-track bully environment. But they just can't sustain it. And that that's long been a feature. Plus, England get get rid of guys too early. So, you know, should they keep on picking Ben Youngs and George Ford? I can see the argument for not doing it. That you know, there, there comes a point where you have to break up and say goodbye. But I, it's just impossible to see. I think England will play pretty well. I think there'll be a challenge for Ireland because they're physically very strong. Um, and there'd be part of it that would sort of go, Jesus, like you'd almost like to play Keane at hooker against England to, to counteract their scrummage and threat. But I just can't see them scoring more points than Ireland. And there's a couple of things which I was thinking about recently. Firstly was the the final that Leicester and Saracens played at the end of last season, which was one of the, the real shocker of a game. Absolute dog shit. There was, I think... I think Leicester kicked the ball and Borthwick was coaching them at the time I think they kicked the ball in open play 59 times like there was over 100 kicks in open play which is incredibly tedious um, but his halfbacks at that stage were George Ford and Wigglesworth both of whom are excellent kickers so his halfbacks against France 
where uh, Van Poorfleet and Smith, neither of whom are that good tactical kickers. So I think he's sort of trying to play with the Leicester style that he knows that the team who kicks, and you know France won last year Six Nations and Grand Slam by kicking more than everyone else. I think he's trying to play like that, and I don't think he's picking the right players. And secondly, another thing that uh, I've read from sort of several English uh, commentators who I would have time for that the Premiership game is refereed differently because they want a more open game, which and that's their prerogative. Like their refereeing system is well organized, uh, but that they are very, uh, very penalty happy around the breakdown. So they allow very little uh, contest for the ball at the breakdown, and as a result. England, when it comes when they come to international rugby, they're coming out second best because they're not um, they're not playing the same the same way as other other teams. They're trying to play this squeaky clean, almost breakdownless fan out uh, fan out defense type of type of uh, game. Unfortunately, it's hard to look at England and not point the finger at Steve Borthwick. And I say unfortunately because. Steve Borthwick seems a really sound, kind of admirable guy, but that was England's record defeat against Twickenham. I looked up what it was England's record defeat against Twickenham. He was captain. So he's oh, now yeah. been the coach and the captain of England's worst two games at home, which is like just such an unenviable record. And like I said, he he seems like a very straightforward kind of bloke. And I think that you're going from a situation... I think looking at the players that England have, so we, we've gone through those and looking how uninspired they are and looking at Borthwick's comment, like we're not good at anything, that he's like a very data-driven guy. I think Steve Borthwick in 10 years' time will be a better coach than Steve Borthwick now. But in 10 years' time, like he will never get an opportunity like he has now to coach England because, as I say, they, they get rid of guys too soon. So they've gone from a situation of having a guy in Eddie Jones who's been coaching at the top level for 20 years. Like, Eddie Jones was... Uh, 25 years. Eddie Jones was, the like, the, the coach of the Australian national team in 19... Sorry, in 2003, having taken over from Rod McQueen, having been, like, you know, Rod McQueen's successor at the Brumbies. With... A wealth of experience. Haven't ha- haven't had to reinvent himself completely in Japan. Um, having been on the inside of the dressing room at South Africa, and frequently the way that's portrayed, or the way I'd portray it, is like you know, from Eddie Jones' perspective, like Eddie Jones brings his magic to the you know to the Springboks. That sort of you know, where he doesn't have the responsibility of necessarily being the first guy to talk to the media or having to pick the team, and he's kind of free. But, like, it works the other way as well, that Eddie Jones gets inside, like, a great Springbok team and he gets to see how they operate and he gets to understand, like, how much they treasure defence and what's their approach to winning and what's their confidence and what's their mentality. Because Eddie didn't win the World Cup in 2003 at home with, with the Wallabies. So England have replaced a guy with Eddie Jones' wisdom and experience and ability with a guy who's, you know more towards the beginning of his of his coaching journey than towards the end and certainly at the highest level so like very much a fella who's who's fairly uninspired like who who doesn't have a feel for the game and Borthwick probably does have a feel for the game but he doesn't know how to translate that as a coach because he's just broken it all down into the numbers he's been led by them and 
he's kind of blinded by he's blinded to reality by statistics is what it looks to me so he's just he's just got this english team playing like a fairly crappy game uh and the players look uninspired by it yeah that sorry to cut across you there that always strikes me um when i mentioned about the statistics being so similar like i can almost see i could i could imagine borthwick being like we need to do x amount of these per game but in particular that thing about like the teams who kick the most win is like those that's you know it's such a classic confusion of correlation and causation like <clears throat> kicking the ball away doesn't make you win kicking the ball well to put pressure on the other team and winning kicking duels to gain territory from which you score either penalties or tries that wins games kicking the ball doesn't win the game there's a correlation between an action but like the biggest correlation is between scoring fucking points and winning games yeah. and like we, we, we talked about Farrell being a vibes man and Farrell is a vibes man and Farrell's a guy who's gone about his coaching career in a very different way that Faz has been in, like Faz was involved in a Lions tour in 2013, I think yeah. I'm right in saying as the defensive coach. So 10 years later, he's doing his first head coaching job, having obviously had a, like a stellar playing career across two codes, but having spent a lot of time as a coach at a high level in different environments, learning how that's done. The other thing was like Stuart Lancaster gave his his uh, interview on the podcast recently and he talked about the, the IP and how much New Zealand tried to retain the IP. And again, you go back to one of the great English faults about how they let go of guys too early. Lancaster, Roundtree, Cash, Farrell are all coaching in Ireland. And they're all better than they were in 2015. And one other thing which I would add about uh, Farrell was, like, it took a, it took a long, quite a long time at, at test level for Farrell and Katz regime to to make you know big positive changes like we we didn't just end the world cup and get this big bounce into 2020 admittedly a, a tournament which was broken up by uh, covid but we didn't go in 2020 now now you know faz comes in and sprinkles magic vibes dust around and all of a sudden Ireland are throwing the ball around that didn't happen and in 2021 that wasn't that wasn't like a, a superb six nations for us either it took time and then it also took the addition of Paul O'Connell coming in. Like, O'Connell made a huge difference when he came in. So, like, there's a lot of... The idea that Razzie... The idea that people have taken, uh, including, like, CEOs have taken, the Welsh CEO, the English CEO have taken this, that you can change your, your coach before World Cup, relatively shortly before World Cup, and, you know, this could work really well. You know, Razzie came into a very bad situation but about about 19 20 months out before the world cup not like eight not eight months out you know he was still playing like they were playing they played some dog rough games when razzie had just taken over like it takes time to be able to implement significant change and i don't think either england or wales have afforded themselves that time Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I, uh, the South Africans bringing in Razzie, um, I always think it does undermine the you need four years to plan for a World Cup thing because, which is positive. I don't, I don't believe in the four yeah, years. Yeah, I, do, I don't, I don't believe in that either. But it is that it's the 
firing Jones mid-season and hiring an entire um, coaching ticket from one like the most the the current champions as you as you described it, that strikes me as like someone seeing that in in internet in in club soccer and being like, that's what we'll do, rather than be like, that's a good way to run the national team. Like if they didn't fancy Jones, they thought it was all gone sour or couldn't stand him anymore for whatever reason. Why didn't they fire him in the summer? And they say, give yourself loads of time to find, or not loads, but a lot more time to find a coach and with a lot more options where people might be willing to leave or out of contract or whatever. Like, instead of firing him in December, like a year before World Cup, it strikes me as, it strikes me as endemic uh, kind of behavior of an organization that genuinely, literally seems to get so little right. Everyone seems to fucking despise the RFU. In, in, and like maybe rugby unions aren't just generally not that popular but like they just seem to be doing a particularly bad job at the rugby side of things Digs like a demented mole there 